listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Grab a seat. My name is Mark, if I haven't met you. We're going to uh, begin a new series today, which is exciting, called Faith for Exiles. Before we do that, or as part of that, we're actually going to open our Bibles. If you haven't brought your Bible, there is a Bible, it should be on the little uh, shelf on the seat in front of you. Uh, And uh, we're actually going to turn to page 197 in that, which is 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're actually going to begin at verse 4. 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. Just to set this up for us, uh, Israel, the people of God, are people who are not special or better than any other group in the world, but simply chosen by God to be a vessel of His grace and glory and holiness in the world, have been given a land, they've escaped with God's help from slavery in Egypt, being given a land where they've been commanded to live the ways of God, to be an example and a light of justice and righteousness and love to the other nations. Yet, they want to be ruled by a king like the other nations, and they've been given a king, a king called Saul, and Saul has gone mad. It's not a madness of losing touch with reality in the sense it's a madness driven by ego, driven by a giving over to the dark side of life, where he's no longer ruled by the things which God wants him to be ruled by, and then to be an embodiment of that amongst the people, he now is mad with power. The country is facing a tremendous challenge as you've got a king who has gone mad with power, and at the same time, an external force is coming against them, a nation known as the Philistines threaten their borders and is surrounding them. And so this is a really, really difficult time for the people of God. And in difficult times for the people of God, God often works in unusual ways. The people are praying for a victory, but victory comes in a very kingdom sense. When we say kingdom, what we mean by that, if you're new to church or never understood that word, is God's ways in contrast to the ways of the world. So we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 4, and I'm just going to read. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Now, what would happen in ancient battles is that often before the battles, there would be a meeting of champions. We have a very 20th or 21st century view of war, but war in the ancient Near East where this takes place was actually seen not as this division between a secular activity, if today Australia was to go to war with Tasmania, Uh, We would not be looking at that as a theological uh, uh, battle, but that's how it was seen, or maybe we would, but that's how it was seen in the ancient world. So what they would have is the coming together of two champions, and this is where the word comes from, two champions between two of the nations would meet and fight in a one-on-one battle before the big battle, and the victor of that battle would be seen as a sign that the gods were on the side of that particular army, and then the battle would commence. 
we more know champion as sport uh, concept. In some ways, you know, sport is a little bit of a war substitute, particularly international sport. So out comes the champion of the Philistines, and his name is Goliath, to battle. Now, who is meant to turn up? The king is the one who's meant to go forth. But Israel has a problem. Their king has gone mad with power. Speaking of Goliath, we continue. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. This was a gigantic champion. This was a megastrophic warrior. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why don't you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down and fight me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. So this is ancient trash talking. (laughs) Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight here. This is a word of defiance against the purposes of God and the people of God. This is a very physical, large specimen of a human being who can do a tremendous amount of damage, representing all that comes against the people of God. And not only is he coming against them, he's throwing absolute defiance in their faces. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. We're going to come back. I want to pause there for a moment. We are beginning a new series called Faith for Exiles. And this is a series born of a book and a study. And the book is called Faith for Exiles. Uh, There is some copies um, which we've got on our bookstall. But also, this is the compilation of a bunch of surveys that were done uh, across 26 nations looking at the state of faith for the next generation or the generation which are known as millennials, 18 to 35s, in multiple different countries. Now, normally, I don't think we've ever gone through a survey before as a sermon series, and there's going to be scriptures all through this, Um, but the reason that we felt that we needed to do this actually happened a number of months ago. There's been a few key moments leading red where I really felt God clearly direct us in a particular direction. We've spoken about some of them before, um, and there was another one of those in July this year. It's really weird. I've spoken before how sometimes God speaks to me most about what he wants to do with red when I'm not here. Getting away from the daily rhythm of what needs to be done getting far away, sometimes to the other side of the planet, I find that God profoundly speaks to me about red and weirdly speaks to me about Australia when I'm not in red and not in Australia. And I'd been speaking at a 
conference in Los Angeles and my friend David Kinnaman, who's the president of the Barna Group, which is probably the world's leading Christian demographic research uh, company, uh, contacted me and said, can we just hang out for the day? Not really for any purpose other than to, he wanted to share what they've been learning. We'd been chatting for some time over the last few years just about the challenges facing the church at the moment. Traditionally, Barna had been an organization which worked in the United States. And I remember when I first started ministry, I would get these books and have all this research and there was elements which resonated, but then it was sort of American. So you're trying to like pick, you know, what, what does this mean for the church in Australia? But what Dave and his group partnering with World Vision um, had done was actually look across a huge swathe of the West, including some non-Western but developed and developing countries. At what is the state of faith in the next generation? And they presented the information to me and the findings, and there was this incredible synchronicity with what I think God has been shaping red for. And there was this particular moment where we'd sort of digested all of this information. We'd hung out and had lunch and I'd met with his team and presenting stuff and seeing the report. And, and Dave and I then went for this walk um, down behind their offices. Uh, he's situated in Ventura, which is about an hour and a half above uh, Los Angeles. And uh, we went on the pier at, that, that, that was us at night. Uh, did I mention that? It was, it was dark. There we go. And, um, and it's a very Baywatch image, isn't it? Um, and I've been on this trip for a couple of weeks and got to the end of it. And we went on to the end of the pier at Ventura. And I was facing the end of the pier, looking out to the seat, basically looking down where my seat was sitting, tilted a little bit back across the Pacific Ocean to Australia. And the findings in the survey, there was this God moment where we just both sat there and prayed. And it wasn't one of those moments like, this is the next project, this is the next book. It was none of that. Like all the rubbish that can sometimes exist in the Christian publishing world, ministry world, just dropped to the ground. And it was this very clear moment where we felt the presence of God at the end of Ventura Pier. And both of us felt really clearly, we're the same age, this is really what the call is from here on in, for us, for the church, to answer the challenges that's coming from this research. And coming back, I knew that the stuff that what we're learning from this research so aligns with what God has been saying to Red. So we're going to look at this over several weeks, dive deep into it. Um, I'm not going to go through everything today. And what I wanted to do today is really lay out the big contours of what this is telling us and what we feel God is saying through this. But I just wanted to begin with this thing that Dave said. His real question is, how do we build resilient disciples at this time? And resilience in Dave's little, little uh, mathematical equation here is realism plus hope equals resilience. You need to know exactly where you are and what you're facing, but then you also need hope. If you just give people realism without hope, it's just absolute pessimism and negativity. Melbourne does that well, particularly the church in Australia. Lots of realism, but not always a lot of hope. If you just have hope without realism, you've just got cloudy dreams that never land anywhere. 
So what I want to do is I want to provide some realism, but then we're going to go to hope. So come on the journey with me. Now, I just want to give one of the big findings. We're going to dive into a bunch of this stuff over the next few weeks. But the first sort of thing I wanted to just explain about really what this research is telling us is this is, across the world, all these different nations, a sample of what to 18 to 35s, what are they doing, what do they think, what do those patterns look like for the future of the church. And this research is looking at people who were born into the church, who had been part of the church at any time, who are 18 to 35. And as they looked across all different nations, from South Korea to Mexico, to, to Austria, to, to Spain, to New Zealand, to Canada, all these different countries, they noticed four groupings emerge of different interactions with the church. Often we just look at people who go to church, people who don't go to church, and this was a sample of four definite groups have emerged around those who at some stage were Christian in the 18 to 35 or still are Christian, and these are the four groupings. Prodigals, these are people who were born Christian or engaged in the church at some stage who have now, in a sense, walked away from their faith. They've made a definite decision that whilst they were once Christian, they're no longer Christian anymore. The second grouping is what are called nomads. These are people who were engaged in Christian community. They still, in a way, believe but they're no longer practicing that in any embedded form in an actual community. So they've left the church, or they may still believe. The third group was habitual churchgoers. These were people who go to church at least once a month, um, I think it was, um, and uh, actually it's maybe a little bit um, less than that, but they're still part of a faith community. They may even go to church every week. They may even be in a Bible study. They may even be volunteering. But when you look at their beliefs and their actions alongside just a really basic framework of what biblical belief is, they don't align. So in other words, they're doing church, but they're not doing biblical Christianity. And then the last group, and I just want to give you a little bit of hope here. This is realism, but I'm going to drop a smidgen of hope here, is what emerged was this really, really interesting group, the resilient disciples. And this resilient disciples group are people who are living out their faith. They're praying, they're reading the scriptures, they're serving the poor, they're sharing their faith, they're sharing this with other people. This is really the remnant in the church, in the world at the moment, in that 18 to 35 group. Okay, so we're going to get to Australia, and you're going to get the breakdown of what it looks like in Australia, but I thought as a point of comparison, let's go on a little global tour. So most Christian um, material, the vast amount of Christian publishing, podcasts, music, TV comes from the United States. Well, it's the world's most powerful nation, over 300 million people, but also dominant in the church sphere. And often what is normal in America is then because if you go to the Christian bookstore, 90% of the books are from the United States, it can seem normative for us. But what's helpful about this particular study is it shows the points of difference. Um, now, America, interestingly, is secularizing. Um, that is not news, I think, to many people. And this is what the breakdown looks like in the United States. So in the United States, 1835s, people who 
at some stage were Christian, either grew up in a Christian faith or at some stage were Christian, 22% um, now have basically walked away from their faith, would no longer consider themselves Christians. Um, 30% believe but are disconnected from church. But look at the dominant grouping here. The dominant group in the United States church is habitual churchgoers. Another term you could use here is cultural Christians. 38% of millennials in the United States go to church, but interestingly, if you were to look at it through a grid, are they doing biblical Christianity? The answer is no. And then you have, in the United States, despite the size of the church, really only 10% you would call resilient disciples or biblical Christians. Okay, that was USA. Book your tickets. We're going to Brazil. Brazil, uh, been a tremendous uh, move of God in the last couple of generations. But interestingly, look how this is, this is starting to change things. 13%, so a much lower number, have actually walked away from their faith. 28% disconnected from the church. But then 42% in that habitual churchgoer group. But still a higher number of resilient disciples in Brazil. But it's interesting too, we're in a moment where what this study, we'll get into this more, but what the study is saying is that millennials are more like each other around the world than they are with other people in their own culture. So what's happening is that, and we, uh, as you know, many of you know, Red does this podcast with Bridgetown in Portland, Oregon, with John Mark Comer and I, and it's been really interesting. We started that thing saying, hey, this is a podcast for people living in sort of post-Christian progressive cities like Melbourne and Portland. And really, people have basically told us off for saying that. Um, John Mark was talking to a bunch of leaders from Brazil, um, and, and they were saying to him, everything you're talking about, even though Brazil has had this renewal, that actually the next generation is being affected by the secular trends. I'm going to be doing a video uh, a call with a bunch of leaders across Indian cities soon who are saying that what's happening in India is you have these secular trends in young professionals in Indian cities, but then you've got people three blocks away who are, who are living out this sort of fundamentalist uh, Hinduism. So just fascinating time in the world. All right, let's keep going. I could talk about these world stats forever. There was 26 and I was tempted to do a four-week series on them. Okay, Africa, Kenya, fascinating. 9% walked away from their faith. People who believe but don't belong, only 7%. Habitual church goes 43%. This is the highest number, by the way, of all the nations um, surveyed, 41% of people in the, in the Kenyan church who are millennials are biblical Christians. I say, let's just start all reading Kenyan resources. Um, like, we need to learn something. But it also shows you, too, how often just because the loudest voices are not necessarily the most biblical voices, when it looks at Christian nations around the world, Germany, Europe, 23% of uh, prodigals walked away from their faith 49% of people which are unchurched, which is actually quite big. It's interesting. One of the statements uh, Kathy Davis, who's a religious sociologist, said about Europe is people think Europe is secular, but she says Europe is a place where people believe but no longer belong. Really, really interesting. Um, habitual church guys, 23% in Germany. But look at this. Resilient disciples, 4%. I'm, I haven't got the stats here, but Austria next door. Resilient disciples in the Austrian church, 1%. We need to pray for the German-speaking countries. Um, South Korea, 
a country which had numerous, and in the north, um, numerous uh, renewals and revivals. Did you know that Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, was actually a thriving city with the gospel? Billy Graham's wife, uh, Ruth, was actually born in Pyongyang. Um, and in many ways, the, the North Korean regime is actually, interestingly, a post-Christian regime. That's for another day. Uh, I get excited here. We'll, we'll, we'll get through all this. I love the world. Um, so South Korea, 22% are prodigals, walked away from their faith. 8% nomads, not connected to a, a faith community. 53% are habitual churchgoers and 16% resilient disciples. Okay, Australia. Didgeridoo sounds... Cockatoos, you ready? 38% have walked away from the faith. The highest number equal with Switzerland. Uh, 32% are no longer connected to a faith community. Habitual churchgoers, 22%. So Australia and New Zealand, almost exactly the same. Australia's a little bit more secularised than New Zealand according to these statistics, but it's really so close. Um, so what's so interesting is Australia, compared to many of the other countries, even the European countries, there's a lot less cultural Christians, a lot less cultural Christians in Australia. But 8%. I think Canada's 9, US is 10. Really, really interesting. There is still this 8%. All of the supposed Australian antipathy towards faith, all of the supposed irreligious nature of Aussies, all of the secular pressure in our country, still 8%, actually comparatively, for a Western secular country is good. It's not matter how many have walked away, it's how many are still here and believing with all their hearts. 8%. But, again, we're looking at realism and hope. What this means for the Australian church is, if you think about, I could hear wafting from our kids' spaces, the sounds of kids' uh, connecting and, and, and learning about God. But what this is saying is that without radical change, we will lose 70% of our young people. Now, if you add that, that's, that's, that's not taking into account that we're looking at 18 to 35s. The trends of secularization are increasing and the pressure and antipathy against faith are increasing for the next generation. So that's presuming that the pressure stays the same as it is. So, I want to say at this point, Business as usual is over. Business as usual is over. Going to church as something that you do and assuming that all this stuff is going to continue to be here is no longer an assumption that we can make. That actually, sitting with Dave, you can now start to see sitting on that pier having read these statistics. I remember we were, we were sitting there and, and before we were on the pier, but just before, like we got this text where one of the researchers texted in who was remote working, and they were all sort of shocked that actually the finding came through that this, the research is saying it is harder to be a Christian in a post-Christian country than it is to be in a non-Christian majority country. So if you're a Christian today in a country like Indonesia or India, which is you know, Muslim or Hindu or, or Buddhist country, uh, which is the dominant viewpoint, it's easy to be a Christian in those countries for your faith than it is to be in a post-Christian country. Really interesting in the health of your faith. Fascinating finding. Okay. 
So I just want to talk for one second about generations because we can look at this and there's a whole bunch of generational battle rubbish flying around online at the moment. Boomers versus millennials. It's all rubbish. Just elbow the person next to you if they're a boomer or millennial. Say, it's all rubbish. The internet generates battles. That wasn't passionate enough. I'm not happy. You need to fight for a second. But actually, when you look at really what this is saying, it's less about generations. There's another story, because I don't want to just look at this through a generational battle which the media wants us to look it through. We have different generations in the world, builders, boomers, Gen X, millennials, Zoomers. Our two biggest are boomers and millennials. That's why they get so much of the coverage. Um, But really what this story is, is not that millennials are any worse off than boomers, or boomers are more selfish than millennials, or millennials are more selfish than boomers. I don't know why anyone doesn't talk about Gen X. They're listening to the cure somewhere. Um, (laughs) That that, that actually, uh, Zoomers, and all these different things. But really the story of this is actually the story of a Western script of intensifying individualism and the ongoing uh, 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 implications of that life script. And so this means that if you look from particularly, it began, you can look at the 1920s and 30s, um, but particularly the boomers were the real first generation which lived this beginnings of a really individualistic script. And it's not that they invented that, it's the cultural pressure of the West, which is now going to other countries like India, going to places you know, like, like uh, Brazil, but it's actually intensifying across the generations. Now this doesn't mean that Zoomers are actually, or millennials are gonna be more Um, individualistic than boomers, actually what the research is showing us both uh, in research and also just anecdotally is that everyone is becoming following this script more. So boomers, you know, it's really interesting. Some of this research, I spoke to a pastor who was a church for almost baby boomers, which are people just born after World War II, and he just said, literally in the last sort of five, ten years, commitment is dropping off amongst the baby boomer generation. So this is spreading. And to look at this in another way, you can see these particular phases that Western culture has gone through. And we have traditional cultures uh, across the world, but then the modern age really began when we moved to what I'm going to call institutional individualism. So we moved away from the sense that you're born in that particular area, you're never going to move, someone's going to tell you who to marry, what to believe, and what job you're going to have, and you're just stuck there. That's in many ways traditional culture where you're defined by what land you, you live on, what job you do, your family ties, your religious ties. There's not a lot of choice. Often a lot of meaning, but actually not a lot of choice. And then there was a shift with the modern world where it became institutional individualism. You gave up those things and you had a lot more freedom, but there was still a deficit of meaning. So all these different things were created. Uh, There is a series of pictures I saw in a history book taken in Box Hill, not far from here, and it was the Box Hill Community Parade. And it was staggering. The whole of Whitehorse Road filled with all these different institutional groups, Rotary, Scouts, the Women's Temperance Movement, all these different groups, Masonic Lodges, all these groups which were sort of like church that people would join, football clubs, cricket clubs, netball clubs, and you would join them and they'll give you a sense of meaning. You'd have to commit to them but it actually helped you in a sense, be free, choose what you want to do, but then also it gave you a bunch of social connection. But that's shifted. And that's shifting in the last 20 years, where that's the world that a lot of boomers lived in, and the church shaped itself particularly for that era. Even the concept of small groups really grows up in the era of institutional individualism, 
that if you look all across Melbourne, you have these church buildings everywhere built in all different denominations that are sort of like 100 to 150 size. When Billy Graham came out and there was a sort of renewal and all these churches started, but there was a cultural understanding that if people could commit, sorry, commit to Christ, because the world, in a sense, had given this model of how to then commit, that these churches would begin and grow. But then we've moved into this hyper-individualism where you have freedom in increasing amounts, but you have less of an understanding of actually how to connect yourself to other people. What the research is showing us in this Connected Generation report is that millennials feel absolutely connected to events happening across the world. They feel connected to their generation through technology across the world, but are increasingly isolated and lonely and disconnected in their own communities. Many do not have any friends, no friends. And so this is the weird offset of hyper-individualism. You can choose who you want to be, you can choose what hair you want to have, you can choose what career you want to have, you can choose where you want to live in the world. You have endless choice. You can download any movie that you want, yet the price for that is increasing isolation. And we're seeing now the trend move from this freedom being something which is overwhelming, sorry, moving from something which is exciting into something which is overwhelming. And we're just beginning to move into the stage of fragmentation. And again, we're gonna talk about it more, I'll just drop it here, that one of the things that is marking this age is ambient anxiety as the norm the price of fragmentation, where people can't agree on anything and any form of cultural cohesion falls apart. And we are living at this moment. Most of our church models, even our contemporary church models, are actually based on institutional individualism. And we're racing through hyper-individualism into fragmentation. And it means everything is bizarre. You can have, literally, I've seen, you know, in the last sort of couple of months, we've seen pastors who are really well-known, written lots, multiple books, who then all of a sudden online come out as, no, I'm an atheist now. You've seen that move. At the same time, you've got people deconstructing their faith online and fragmenting. Then you've got the world's biggest hip-hop artist, entrepreneur, going on this faith journey. And hang on, that guy who like two years ago was at that Christian conference, he's an atheist now. And then Kanye West is walking around Wyoming, like talking about Jesus and like, what the heck is going on? Welcome to the world in which we're living, where people are moving in these opposite directions. Now... The language that Dave uses in this book is the language of digital Babylon to, ex to explain this experience. In the scriptures, there is the real city of, of, of Babylon, which is in today's Iraq. And Babylon was one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. Babylon was the nation which emerged when the people of Israel continued to be disobedient, not to be a people of justice and righteousness. And actually, God then allowed the, the effects of that and the Babylonians come and overrun them. And an entire generation was taken away from Israel where God's presence was and put into this gigantic, amazing, super power culture of Babylon. Daniel was one of those people. Daniel was called to follow God in the midst of a foreign land. And this term, this, this, this generation became the exile generation. And they had to learn what it was to be faithful 
in a foreign land where everything was undermining of your faith, where the entire cultural pressure was against you. Now, what's really interesting is Babylon is an historical reality in the Scriptures, but it's also a spiritual reality. The Scriptures hint at all these different things. Babylon's sort of origins begin in the city of Babel, a city built as a rejection and rebellion against God, of humans wanting to be like God. Even in the book of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, this language of Babylon describes actually any human culture which rebels against God and wants to trust in human power. The Babylonians believed that they were descended from a race of God-like people, that the world had been overtaken by a giant flood and their ethnic descendants were these superhumans who had this supreme knowledge and therefore they were more enlightened and ahead of the rest of the world. That what the rest of the world needed to do was simply get on board with the Babylonian vision of what the world should look like and the world would then progress to this wonderful utopian future. That was the myth of Babylon. And Babylon, this physical place that this generation was taken to, the people's longed to go back home. Now what Dave is saying in this book, Faith for Exiles, is that we now live in digital Babylon. Babylon then comes to us. Digital Babylon is like a disembedded, floating Babylon that comes to you. Because what is discipling us, and we'll talk about this more later, but people now are being discipled by screens. You can go to the Christian school, you can go to the Christian basketball group, you can only shop at Christian bookstores, only buy your hardware from Christian hardware stores if they exist. You can do all these things to try and hide away from the world, but now the world is in your pocket at any time. Babylon is now digital. And the next generation lives in a digital environment and it's shaping us. The next generation is being discipled by screens and the high-performance religion of sport. I love those moments because people on the podcast are like, what's going on? <laughs> Nervous laughter. The Babylonians believed that those superhumans were a race of giants. And so some explanations of Goliath are actually of this man who perhaps had an overexcited pituitary gland or was just like <laughs> equivalent of an NBA basketballer who just appeared in the ancient world. But you see these other characters, the king of Og, these people who actually were the descendants of this blending of humans and fallen angels. And so... Goliath actually represents this dream that humans can be godlike. And who does God send? Saul is mad with power. Saul is supposedly meant to be on God's side, but he wants to meet the power of the enemy who puts their power in humans' ability to be like God. And that doesn't fly in a kingdom economy. We have a young man. 
the young man who's been anointed by God to actually lead Israel when Saul is still on the throne. A man who has an anointing, but he doesn't yet have a platform. A man who's not actually shaped in the royal court. A young man who's actually isolated. His friends, the sheep. His companions, the rocks. But his hope is in the God who meets him in the hidden places. Someone who's different to the rest of his generation. Someone who learns those psalms which will appear in our scriptures as the heart language to be sung to God on cold nights as he watches the sheep. A young man who at that time is simply someone who lives on the edge of culture looking after this group of animals, protecting them from wolves. The one skill he has is actually to scare off the wolves, not with a spear or a bow and arrow or a sword, all things which cost money, but actually the simplest of weapons, a bunch of stones and a leather sling. Something which, a skill which is developed again and again in isolation, the one thing that he can do well. This young man comes to the battlefield and brings supplies to his brothers. He rocks up to the battlefield, he's not a soldier, and he's met with the disrespect that sometimes civilians meet in military circles as someone who doesn't fight. Verse 28, when Alhab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked, why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So not only is he a next generation actually formed in isolation, he's a next generation that's actually told he's hopeless. He's actually told that he's actually purposeless, that he's actually selfish, that actually he can't do this, and actually this place is not for him. Go back and let the next generation deal with this, David, because this is not your moment. That sense of frustration he feels in his heart, verse 29, what have I now done, says David? I can't even speak. And then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. You're the younger generation. And he's been a warrior from his youth. How can this generation face the half-God-man of Goliath? But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Strange times require strange agents of God. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Before David, the next generation, can actually face against he who sends shouts of defiance against the people of God. He has already won the personal battles in the hidden places. And what actually at this moment, unbeknownst to you, some of the personal battles that you've actually been facing in the quiet places are not just meaningless suffering, 
The question that God has been, been wrestling with, God, why are you allowing this to continue? What if that, as Hebrews says, this has actually been disciplined from the Lord, a shaping of you in the hidden places? What if God is actually quietly preparing another generation of any age? Because the biblical definition of generation is not 18 to 35. The biblical definition of a generation is the believers who exist in the world at this moment and who are alive. The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. The God who's rescued you from the things you face, the difficulties in your private life, all these different experiences where God over the last couple of years has been moving Red Church as we've felt this push to push into renewal that he's actually now preparing us and shaping us as warriors to actually stand against the defiance that comes against these people and belief in this time and to actually make now a stand believing that God is with us. Saul said to David, go and the Lord will be with you. But really interesting moment. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put an ar- coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off and took his staff in hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch and shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand approached the Philistine. Saul sees the challenge. Saul sees that God's hand is on this young man. But what he wants to do is put him in the effects and the resources of human power. Yeah, fight the battle, but you need all the human armor. You need the human weapons. David realizes that this kind of challenge is not going to be faced with more human power. The rebellion against God, the trying to cross between the divine and the human, the belief and the Babylonian investment in that humans can become like gods is not going to be met with more human power. Instead, David goes out naked, practically, militarily, from an earthly perspective. But he knows that God is with him. And when we look at digital Babylon and the power of everyone from Google to Apple to the entire media to the entire world which seems to set itself against God, we can feel like David going out recognizing that we need more resources, we need to run around like headless chickens that were actually not equipped for this task. But actually what David is telling us here is that it's those who go out with the Lord who will meet this challenge. And what is so interesting is that David recognizes that the giant is as not as strong as the Israelites think, that behind his shouts of defiance, there is actually a strategic weakness. Richard Rumelt, in his classic book on strategy, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, that's a good title, actually says that one of the keys to strategy is recognizing that often what looks strong actually has weaknesses. That when we reframe a situation and see it from a different perspective, all of a sudden the mighty can look weak and the weak can look mighty. David, in the words of Malcolm Gladwell in his book on David and Goliath, realizes that giants are not what we think they are. The same qualities that appear to give them strength are often the sources of great weakness. 
that actually at this moment, we have a world which is increasingly anxious in the face of unparalleled freedom. We have a world that is increasingly disconnected and purposeless. And who are the people that are actually called to form a new family on the earth that is, that is actually tied not by physical or relational binds, but actually spiritual binds, that are actually called to come and create a new kingdom of God in the world, that we are the people who actually know how to do community and what if our moment is now? What at a moment where actually people are paralyzed by endless choice, we the people who believe in the one true God, the one church, the one choice of faith, that what if this is our moment? What if actually at a moment where the world is realizing that endless human power is actually leading us into increasingly dangerous and risky situations, what about if it's the time for the people to actually realize that now it is time for the humble, the faithful, those who realize that on the cross, God showed power in weakness. What if now is time for the Davids? Because at moments of pressure, diamonds are created. I couldn't care less. Like, I looked at the stats and 70% are actually leaving. I thought it would be like 80. You know, I've been doing this stuff for years. I've met with countless people who had, it was a stage where literally anyone who's leaving the church would come and say, oh, his friend would go, go and talk to Mark Sayers. I sat in endless cafes and endless, like, mall, like, food courts, talking to people who are going to leave the church. I've heard all the stories. I've seen it all before. What I'm excited about is actually the fact of the 8%. Because the story that I've seen in red over the last few years, and this is what the research is telling us, that the resilient disciples are becoming better Christians. We last night, for those of you who were at Kingdom Come, I looked around the room Saturday night in Melbourne, the city of options, and a room filled with people crying out to God, fasting all day. Pressure is creating diamonds. God is creating a resilient generation and a group of resilient disciples. The time of cultural Christianity and the church setting itself around, providing for the needs of people who half want to be here is over. Red from here on in is building around those who want to know God, who don't know him yet, and resilient disciples. If you're sitting here and going, I'm a habitual Christian, brilliant, I'm glad you're here. If you're a nomad who's walked away from the church and dipping your toes back in, brilliant, I'm glad you're here. But we're now going to be moving you towards being a resilient disciples because that is what the scriptures ask us to do. And this is the moment where God builds resilient disciples into a remnant because out of a remnant, that's actually when renewals and revivals spark. So that is the vision statement of us going forward. The goal of discipleship today is to develop Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. Yes, you may face cultural coercion and pressure, but pressure creates diamonds, and this is actually about living a vibrant faith in the spirit. And so what resilient disciples are showing is what I love about this research. It wasn't just like 70% of people are leaving. Why are they leaving? What can we just do about it? How do we get them back? What is realizing is that actually that we need to look at the resilient disciples. The resilient disciples are the answer because they're doing things which buck the trends. If everyone in Australia is getting the flu and there's a group of people who are not getting the flu and showing incredible rude health, study the people who are not getting the flu and in rude health and do what they're doing. 
So the research tells us that there's like five things that actually resilient disciples are doing. Number one, resilient disciples are experiencing Jesus. They form an identity, a primary identity as a resilient disciple, and they're experiencing deepening intimacy with Jesus. We as a church are going to continue to push into this. In a moment, your life can change in an encounter with Jesus. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks, we're going to actually look at these independently. I'll just give you the overview now. And actually, we're going to go deep and say, how can we be a community marked by these? doesn't matter what age you are. We want you to become a resilient disciple. So the first one, experiencing Jesus. The second one, cultural discernment. In a complex and anxious age, develop the muscles of cultural discernment. If only Red had been pushing into this for some time. (laughs) Literally, I put a little thing up about the fact that we were going to be doing this sermon online and received countless messages from around the world. Thousands of responses. There are people all over the shop looking at us, not because we're the best and brightest, but there's an element where God has seeded something here a number of years ago. Not because we were super smart and this is what we wanted to do, just through our struggles with actually trying to build church in Melbourne. God said, look at the culture. Look at what it's doing. Show people how to discern it and look at it from a biblical perspective. In a complex and anxious age, develop the muscles of cultural discernment. We're going to keep pushing into this. This is one of the contributions that God has asked Red to play in the world at this moment. Number three, in an isolated age, the resilient disciples develop meaningful relationships. When isolation and mistrust are the norm, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. We're not going to accept that the future is loneliness. We're not going to accept that it's isolation. I can't come up with a program that makes you all relate to each other in meaningful ways. I don't have that power. I can send emails. I can't do that. But together, we're going to go in a different direction. And we're going to center on how do we be a different kind of community at this time of isolation in the world. Vocational discipleship practice four. Find purpose and contribution through training for vocational discipleship that whatever you do, whether you're a carpenter here or a computer specialist, whatever you do in the world, whether you're a parent, however you affect the world, whether you're whatever you're doing, to actually do that through a kingdom of God framework. In a few weeks, Sarah is going to preach on this and actually talk about how do we do our jobs reflecting the kingdom of God values that God has for us. How do we make a purposeful Adam and Eve contribution in the world that God wanted them to make before the fall? Key, key practice. Practice five, countercultural mission. Curb entitlement, which is present in all of those generations, baby boomer onwards. It's not just a millennial. Entitlement is real. It's not just in one generation. Entitlement is the effect of living in a culture which says hedonism and the pursuit of pleasure and the individual is the highest good. We get entitled. We need to be detoxed from entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in counter-cultural mission, sharing our faith, having a heart for our neighbor and the nations, serving the poor. 
We're going to be preaching and speaking on this as well. David sees the giant. I've got no doubt he's afraid. I've got no doubt that he's got butterflies in his stomach. But he recognizes the weakness in the giant. He realizes that he has an asymmetrical strategic advantage. He recognizes that God is with him and God is with us at the moment. God wants to do something at the moment. And he sees on the forehead of Goliath an opportunity. Unleashes that stone which he'd learned to do in the hidden places time and time again. Doing something he'd rehearsed in the quietness without an audience. When he didn't have a platform. When he had that anointing but it still had to be proved in the private before the public victory would come. And then he unleashes that stone, which flies towards the head of Goliath and defeats him. This is an upside-down, almost comic victory. And verse 47 says this, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord, and he will give all of you, speaking to the Philistine, into our hands. God is with us. God is with Red. God is doing something at the moment. Last week, I met with two pastors here in Melbourne who just were sharing how they fit this deep sense, like something's happening. One of them, she was saying that she just felt like she has to say to her church, wake up, there is a moment before us, there's an opportunity at this time. I've spoken to people all over the world in different places over the last year I've traveled and just ordinary people coming up and saying, something is going on in the night, God is calling me. God has told me to give up that, a hunger is brewing around the world at this moment and now is a moment of choice. Business as usual is over. Habitual Christianity at this moment will lead you into nowhere land. Now is the time of what army you're going to stand in. Now is the time. It doesn't matter if you've just come here and your last night was an absolute schmozzle of sin and rebellion against God. It's where you're going to choose to be now. And Jesus says, come to me for my burden is light. Join my army. God wants to do something now. This is the organizing principle that red will be centered around. This is everything we're going to be pushed into. So what we're going to do is stand now at the beginning of this series. Last night, again and again at the Kingdom Come night and all through the week, in that past as I spoke to, this sense that there's a threshold moment before us. Daniel had the word pivot, that there's a choice or a pivot that we need to make at this moment. That for literally the last year, again, that word threshold moment just keeps coming up. Last night, at the Kingdom Come moment, we had this invitation for people who wanted to step forward and leave stuff behind before they stepped into a new life with God. But I just feel at this moment, God is asking us to step forward and make a decision. Whether you're someone who wouldn't consider yourself of faith, whether you're someone who's fallen out of the habit of being deeply enmeshed in a Christian community, whether you're someone who's sitting here and asking the question, man, am I a habitual Christian? God is building an army of resilient disciples. And you have to choose. 
what army you want to be in. This is this threshold moment. You don't have to have all the resources and skills in your own strength. This bizarrely is a signing up and a giving up all in the one moment. So we're actually going to move now into a threshold moment. If you feel that you need to respond, that you need to say, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. I'm going to invite you to come down the front. There's space to pray. There'll be people on the sides, but you may just want to come down and kneel before God and say, this is it. I believe that this moment, what we're so hungry for at this moment, we've got everything, we've got so many freedoms, options, consumer items, entertainment, but we're desperately bereft of meaning and meaning is found in the battle. Come forth, find meaning in your God, join the battle. Let's worship.